Well, good morning, and if you don't know me, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I get the privilege of bringing God's word to you today, but before I do that, I've actually already made a mistake in the service. I was supposed to pray for four ladies who are heading off for a mission trip, so I'm not going to make you come up here at this time, but I will at least recognize you and pray for you in just a moment. But um, the, the four ladies are Marjorie Waggy, Stacy Knoll, Linda Hackney, and Jennifer Wadman are all going to uh, lead what's called the North American Women or Native American Women's Conference. And so this is something, uh, a ministry of our church that we do each year. We bring ladies from uh, a couple of different Indian reservations, bring them to a retreat center. Uh, to my knowledge, I think we pay for all of that to just make it easy for them to come. And, and so the, the goal is to pour into them that they would then be rejuvenated and refreshed and, and live the gospel, take the gospel back to where they live each year. And so we're thankful for you ladies and your ministry. I know it's something that you do year in and year out. And so I know you're a great blessing to those you go minister to. And today we're going to turn our attention to God's word in John chapter 17. We'll be in John 17 verses 1 through 5. And if you want to use the Pew Bible, that's going to be on page 903. So page 903 in the Pew Bible. And as you turn there, it's, you're, you're going to notice it's a prayer of Jesus. And it's a prayer which occurred before, just before his crucifixion. And the whole chapter, in fact, is a prayer. We're not going to look at all of it today because it's jammed full of one wonderful gospel truth. So we're just going to look at the first five verses. But the prayer in its entirety is known by maybe a few different titles. One it might be in your Bible labeled the High Priestly Prayer. Or maybe the Prayer of Consecration. And then uh, sometimes I've heard even other people call it the Other Lord's Prayer. Where he shows us, or, or, or he actually sh yeah, shows us what it is to pray to our Heavenly Father. And so before we do that, let's pray now. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that's being proclaimed today in Lovettsville Baptist Church for their first time receiving the public. We thank you for creating this church. We ask that you would sustain Lovettsville Baptist Church and perhaps even now as your gospel may be proclaimed by Pastor Cody, that your word would go out, that it would be an encouragement to your people there, that it would draw the lost to salvation in Christ. And Father, we also ask that you would use your word that goes through your people at the Native American Women's Conference, that it would be a blessing to your people there, that it would build up and enrich their lives, that they would then be refreshed and take the gospel out to where they live, to their neighborhoods and to the children in their streets and their friends. Would you use your word? May it abound today, even as we hear it in just a moment. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Will conversations have a way of changing history forever? It may happen through a phone call. It might happen through face-to-face -face meetings, but conversations can change world history, they've changed American history, 
and they've even changed church history. We see this as influential business leaders meet together and make decisions about their industry and business, and that can change the world. We may see world leaders and government leaders who meet and make agreements between nations that change the world. Even Christian leaders and pastors have met throughout church history to debate and define orthodox theology, orthodox Christian belief. We've seen this, or you see this in the Bible, in Jerusalem, uh, the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, where the apostles and others gather to talk about what does it truly mean, what's required of salvation. We've seen it with the councils of Nicaea and Constantinople, where the nature of Christ has been debated, and even the interaction, the relationship between Christ and the Father. And then even more recently, we've seen it when 200 evangelicals gathered in 1978 and came up with what's called the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy. Conversations can change the world. Hearing a conversation even between God the Father and the Son ought to cause us to pause and gaze at it, to look at it. And that's what we're going to do today. It's going to be a very intimate conversation. It's going to, in fact, be take the form of a prayer. And we see Jesus praying in many times throughout the Bible. He teaches his disciples how to pray in what we call the Lord's Prayer. And today's passage is, is unique. It's the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. It's also only recorded in the Gospel of John. But one way that it's not unique is the way that it begins. It's, it begins with Jesus addressing God as Father, which in fact is the way that he addresses God in prayer every single time as Father, except one when he was on the cross. But another way that it is unique is it gives us a glimpse at an intimate conversation between God the Father and God the Son. It gives us a glimpse into this conversation in the Trinity. So let's go now to God's word. Follow along as I read John 17, 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus begins. And in these five verses, we see just one petition. He asks God, Father, would you glorify me? So I even want, before we jump in even more, I just want to pause for a second and, and us consider what is glory and what does it mean that Christ would be glorified? Well, Paul Tripp, he recounts a story of, of what he uses to, to describe the glory of God. He says, I'll never forget that evening. And this is a little bit long, so bear with me. I'll never forget that evening. I can't think of a moment when I was more blown away by a musical composition. 
I don't recall the composer or the conductor, but I was at a performance played by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. My ticket put me in the front row, and it was worth it. The music was powerful, powerful, foreboding, amazing, haunting, compelling, and glorious, all at the same time. There were moments when I wished this night would never end, and moments when I, waited, when I wanted to get up and run out of the concert hall. There were moments when the music caused my chest to rattle, and moments when it lured me with its whisper. There were moments when musical joy collided with musical fear in a beautiful disharmony of sound. When the performance was over, I felt both sad and exhausted. I wanted more, and yet at the same time, I felt I had had enough. I didn't know why this particular performance had affected me so deeply. Until I looked at the program and saw the name of the composition, it read, God, the most formidable word ever spoken. And then Tripp goes on to say, he says, what I experienced that night was the attempt of a very gifted composer to capture God. In all his amazing and variegated glory, in a single piece of music, in one sense, it was a triumphant effort, and in another sense, a dismal and embarrassing failure. For any human being to think that they could capture the glory of God in a single artistic statement is delusional at best and vain at worst. To squeeze what is infinite into what is finite is vastly more impossible than trying to cram the entire body of a fully developed elephant into a thimble. No matter how gifted you are or how hard you try, it just won't happen. The composer, the conductor, and the orchestra had done marvelously well. But with their grandest effort, they only captured less than a drop of the never-ending ocean that is the glory of God. So how can we describe it? How do we describe the glory of God? Well, in one sense, I want to say we can't fully. We can't fully describe it, but the closest we could get would be to read the entire Bible to get a picture of the glory of God. So if you would, turn to page one with me. We're going to read it. Not really, not today. We don't have time for that. right? But leave it to a pastor who, to, to try to use words to describe something that's impossible to describe. So here's my best attempt. The glory of God is his splendor, his majesty, his weightiness, his awesomeness. It's the sum of his perfections. So to glorify Christ would, would be the going public of his his greatness, his majesty, and his beauty, all his perfections. To glorify Christ would be to honor and to praise him, to, to lift his name on high, to make much of God, to make a big deal about Jesus. So then, I think this forces the question, is, is it wrong for Jesus to ask the Father to glorify me? It sounds self-centered, right? If you and I were to do that, we would say, there's a selfish man. Why would we ask to be glorified in a manner like this? Well, listen to Colossians 1. For by him, that is, by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible 
and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So if this is the one who is asking to be glorified, then it is not wrong. It is not selfish. And in fact, it's right for him to ask to be glorified, to be praised. But as we dive into this passage, we're going to see that this request to be glorified, it's not actually for his own good. Jesus' request is not self-centered. It's not focused on him, but yet it's actually focused on others. So if we're to summarize this, the thought of this passage or this sermon, it's the glory of Christ is for the good of others. We're going to see that in two ways. The first point is the glory of Christ magnifies his Father. So when we look at that, we'll look at verses 1 and 5. And then the second point, we're going to see that the glory of Christ saves his followers. And we'll see that in verses 2 through 4. So let's turn now to our first point. The glory of Christ magnifies his Father. In verse 1, we see Jesus. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. So this reference to the hour has come, it's, it's a reference to his crucifixion. And at least seven times before this in the Gospel of John, Jesus has said, my hour has not yet come or my hour is coming. But yet now, he says, the hour has come. It's upon him. And in the shadow of the cross, as he walks towards the cross in full confidence, there's no hint of turning back. He's resolute in submitting to the plan of God the Father and dying on the cross. So this is not simply the, the hour Jesus has been preparing for. It's the hour the entire world should have been anticipating. It's the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Adam and Eve in the garden to send a rescuer to redeem a people for himself and save them from their sins. And so in the shadow of the cross, Jesus pauses at this moment. But he doesn't just pause to check one more thing off his bucket list. He doesn't just pause at this moment to tell his mom and his family goodbye. He pauses to pray. And so this divinely appointed opportunity, the sovereignty of God provides an opportunity for Jesus to pray. So divine sovereignty is not a, a, an opportunity for you and I, for learning from Jesus here. It's not an opportunity for you and I to just say, well, that's what's going to happen, so I don't need to pray about it. In fact, Jesus knows what's coming. He knows it's from the Father, and yet he still pauses to pray. And he asks God, glorify your son. And the next question I have for that is, well, how will Jesus... Be glorified if it's at the cross. Right? That seems, seems backwards. One commentator says, The cross will display Jesus' ability to satisfy the almighty wrath of the Father, whose worth and dignity and authority and justice are comprehensive. So Christ is glorified in the cross because 
only his blood is sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God, to satisfy the penalty that we deserve. So that means that everyone in this room, everyone in the world for all time who has ever believed in Christ, that there's no sin that's too big, there's no sin that's too great, there's no sin that's too numerous, that the blood of Christ can't wash white as snow. There's no teenager whose amount of rebellion and bad language is too much for Christ to cover. Parents, no amount of anger and yelling, no amount of hardness of heart towards a spouse is too much for God to cover with the blood of Christ. So Christ in his glory, his infinitely precious blood, it was given that you and I might be forgiven and that we might turn from our sin and look to the glorious Christ. And this brings us hope. Because if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you can hear the good news that there is no sin too vile. There is no sin too numerous. God has saved much worse sinners than you. The blood of Christ can cover all. Nothing can top the mercy and grace of God. And Christian, you and I, every single one of our sins, past and present and future, are covered by the blood of Jesus. This is the glory of the cross of Christ, that he would give his life for rebellious sinners like me and like you. And so even as we think about this, as we delight in Jesus today, it's right that we would give him glory. It's right that we would rejoice in Christ. But Jesus doesn't ask for glory so that it would terminate on him. Look at the next phrase. He says, glorify your son that the son may what? Glorify you. So Jesus asked to be glorified so that then he can make much of God the Father. The goal of Jesus asking to be glorified is that you could say that he might boast in the Father. His desire has always been to make much of the Father. And so there's this kind of reciprocal relationship going on where they're boasting in one another, glorifying one another. Perhaps a human illustration for this might be uh, Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, right? Uh, for, for 20 years, the debate was, well, why are the Patriots so good? Is it because Tom Brady or is it because of Bill Belichick? Right? And up until uh, they parted ways, we, we had to debate that, and perhaps it's being made more clear in the recent years. But you would hear post-game interviews, right? And Brady would say something like, we have a great team, or I'm just sticking with the game plan, or it's the Patriot way. He wouldn't take the glory for himself. And then Bill Belichick and his monotone voice and his hoodie and cut-off uh, sweatshirt cut off sleeve sweatshirt, sweatshirt, we'd get up there and he would, he would say, yeah, well, uh, you know, Tom just stuck to the game plan. He did a great job out there. And so there's this reciprocal relationship. And in a far greater way, Jesus says, glorify me, Father, not for me, but that I might make much of you, that I might point people to you. 
And even in this process of glorifying Christ, the death of Christ is inseparable from the resurrection of Christ. Look at verse 5. Jesus says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that you had before the world existed. So, right, it's the same petition. Jesus asks the same thing again. Glorify me. The same thing he asked in verse 1. But then he says, do it with me in your presence. With the glory that I had before you created the world. So even as the cross stands before him, it's right in front of his eyes. He still sees in the future, in the distance, his resurrection. His desire to be with the Father again. So he's saying, Father, raise me. Glorify yourself as you bring me to life. And like a homesick child longing for a parent, Jesus is longing to be in the presence of his Father. He's longing to, to be with him. And that just shows us the, the warmth of their, their relationship, the love between the Father and the Son and the Godhead. And Christian, that's what awaits us too. The warmth of the presence of God. That we would stand in his fullness and enjoy him forever. That we would experience the love of God that surpasses all human understanding. That's what awaits us. So Christian, we ought to see in the glory of Christ, we ought to see the love of Christ here. That he left the presence of the Father, came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He was shunned and hated by the very people who should have received him. He endured death. The shameful, excruciating death on the cross. But this death is glorious. It makes much of the Father. It glorifies God who planned it from the before the foundation of the world. And so as he submits to God, he's making much of the Father. So the glory of Christ is that he's willing to obey the Father in his death. So Christ's petition to be glorified, it's an outward-focused glory. It's the glory of Christ that magnifies the Father. But that's not all. The death of Christ is glorious... For the Christian, because, it's this, it, it, because the same loving and warm presence that, of God that awaits us, this fullness of God, it's a guarantee for all who believe. So our second point, that the glory of Christ saves his followers. So let's look at verses 2 through 4. Verse 2, Jesus says, Since you, that is, since you, Father, have given him authority, that is Jesus, authority over all flesh. For what? To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So the Father glorifies Christ by giving him all authority over all people. If we were to back up and look at John 5, 22, we'd see that God the Father gives Jesus the, the authority to rule and judge over all people. And here we see that the Father gives Christ the authority over people in order to save them. So we're not saying that God saves all. We're saying that 
God saves through Christ all that he gave to Jesus. He saves all whom the Father has given to him. And so this is where we see this wonderful, yet actually very hard doctrine of election. As one pastor said, speaking about election in this verse, he said it's a biblical doctrine, it's a difficult doctrine, but it's also a vital doctrine. And some who wrestle with this, as I did many years ago for many, many months, you might say, well, how, how can this be our God? Is it not unloving and unkind for him to choose some unto salvation? To which I would say, well, no, actually, I think it highlights his loving kindness. I think it points us to the love of God. Because if we understand the Bible correctly, even if we were to read in John chapter 3, right, one of the most famous verses, probably all people can, can, can quote, if you've been to church, even twice maybe. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And if you keep reading on, you see that God the Father sent the Son not to condemn because we did that to ourselves. We turned. We were all on the road to death and destruction. Not wanting anything else because we were pursuing our own passions and desires. God says, I see some. And I'm going to choose them. I'm going to make them mine. And I'm going to give them to my son. And so this is difficult. It is hard. But it's the truth. And it is beautiful. And so we see God the Father in his loving kindness giving some to Jesus. Giving Christ the authority to give eternal life to those. And then verse 3, he defines eternal life. And this is eternal life. That you know, sorry, that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So Jesus was given authority over all people. And this passage is showing us that he was given authority to give eternal life to all whom the Father had given him. So what is eternal life? Well, sometimes we might describe it as life after death or life in heaven forever. We might say it's paradise. It's a place that... There's no sadness or sickness. There's no death. And I think all of these would be appropriate ways to describe eternal life. But notice that's not how Jesus describes eternal life in this passage. He defines eternal life in a very relational way. Right? Eternal life is to know God, the only true God, and Christ, his son. So there's an intimacy described here. It's not merely a head knowledge. So to know God, to, to know Christ in this way, it's, it, it, you might be able to relate it to a husband and wife who've been married 30 or 40 or 50 years, who know each other in such a deep way, that know each other intimately, who've journeyed through life together. And, and you, you can even see this in some of our older couples. They just have a, a deep, genuine love for each other. They cherish one another. 
they love just being next to their spouse. They love talking with them, spending time with them. And so Christian, you have the amazing privilege of knowing God in this way. That you can have a relationship with him. And we can seek him through his word where he reveals himself to us. Because guess what? He wants us to know him. And so are you delighting in your relationship with Christ? Are your affections for Christ growing because you're reflecting on the forgiveness he's extended to you? Are you glorying, delighting in the fact that Christ has given you a relationship with the perfect, holy God? And then Jesus goes on in verse 4. Speaking to the Father again, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. So that the cross, as Jesus anticipates the cross, he could review his incarnation. He could look at it and he could see, he could remember, know the virgin birth, his perfect life, his death on the cross and the resurrection that's to come. And he can say, I've accomplished it all. As the Father has planned for me. And so this work, this glorious work for which Jesus was called. As he's glorified, it's not solely to make much of him. But it's he's glorified by the Father that he might then give his life and die to purchase those who would follow him. To purchase all who would believe. And so he says, I've accomplished this. I've done it. There's nothing left for him to do. And there's nothing more that he could do. There's nothing left for him to do. And there's nothing more that he could do. He's done everything the Father has asked him. He's done it perfectly. And he gave his life for us. If we would believe. And this seems perhaps so foreign to some of us where we want to do things to get on someone's good side we feel like we fail them and so then we feel like there's this this gap in the relationship until we do something to earn back their respect or their favor right you finish or you complete a task and you look back and you see well I, I could have done this different and I could have done that different and I really screw that one up I wish I hadn't done that at all and Jesus, looking at his life and seeing his death and his resurrection to come, can say, I've done it all. I've done it completely, and I've done it perfectly. There's nothing else, Christian, that you can do to add to it. So all praise be to God in Christ who has purchased us. In every moment of his life, in every word that's come from his mouth, in every thought that's passed through his mind, and every emotion that's come flowing from his heart, Christ has perfectly glorified the Father, and every ounce of wrath has been satisfied by Christ, if you would believe in him. So John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is 
the one that we worship today. He has come. He has taken on flesh. He has displayed God the Father perfectly as he was sent. And he's full of grace and truth. So where is glory found? Those who love sports try to find glory in getting the game-winning touchdown. The game-winning shot. Or sometimes we as adults try to find it in work, getting the next promotion or praise from a boss. Parents, sometimes we, we try to, or, or, or we do, our identity gets wrapped up in our kids and the behavior of our kids. When our kids do well, perhaps we kind of puff up our chests thinking we're better parents than others. Or when our children's behavior is not so good, we wonder, what did I do? I'm a failure. We look for glory in so many different ways. Students, you might look for glory in your grades or getting likes and retweets or whatever the newest thing is on social media that makes you feel good. But where is glory found? Jesus looks for glory in the last place that a man and a woman would ever seek it. His glory is found in the cross. So the crucifixion, it's the greatest act of glorification that all of history has ever seen. So we would rightly glorify Christ by placing faith in him, by attributing everything that's good about us to him, attributing everything that earns us salvation to Jesus because we do nothing for it, and it's all founded on him. And so may all praise be to the infinitely glorious Christ who's given his life to magnify the Father and to save his followers. Let's go now to our Heavenly Father. Father, we come to you now. We are thankful for what you have done for us in Christ. It is him that we want to hold high. It's him that we want to base our identity on. It's him that we want to boast of. As you glorified your son and he magnified and glorified you, and as you glorified your son that he might make a way for us to be with you, we thank you. Would you help us to cherish that? Would you help us to grow in our thanksgiving for that as we reflect on the forgiveness of sins that you've given to us. You've washed us white as snow. Help us to delight in Jesus today. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.